This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Well, 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 here we are. 300 episodes. I can't believe it. Fresh Ed has been putting out regular content for 2,569 days. That's just over seven years and averages one new episode every 8.5 days. We've produced close to 200 hours of recorded conversations about education, broadly defined. Over 1 million words transcribed. We started a fellowship program for graduate students and two spin-off podcasts in other languages. There are so many people to thank, from the Fresh Ed team who make all of this possible, to our big institutional donors who give us the freedom to produce independent content. I don't have time to thank everyone who makes Fresh Ed possible, but I would like to pay special tribute to the thousands of listeners who tune in every week from across the globe. Because of you, the whole Fresh Ed team devotes countless hours to make the show possible week after week. So thank you. Thank you for your support, your engagement, and your shared love of education and podcasts. We'll keep going so long as you keep listening. I didn't know the best way to celebrate 300, if I'm being perfectly honest. Reflecting on the past seven years, I started wondering about the prehistory of Fresh Ed. Where did the idea come from? Who shaped its direction? And then I remembered the name Greg Scutches, a mentor to me during my undergraduate studies at Lehigh University. Greg saw education as an end in itself, not some means to another end, like a high-paying job. He loved learning and supporting the process of student learning. Recently, he's written an op-ed in the school newspaper where he calls for us to reimagine higher education as a carnival of learning. I love that phrase, a carnival of learning where anything is possible. I think it captures the idea that Greg instilled in me nearly 15 years ago. And I also think it's what I've always wanted Fresh Ed to be. What needs to be passed on is a carnival of learning. I mean, we act like if we don't test students, they're not gonna be curious. Like if we, if we don't put them through this ridiculous, rigorous protocol, that they're just gonna sit on the couch and play computer games. Computer games are more of a refuge from that, right? If you don't have that, you're not gonna have the cat. You can have students doing things, right? People are curious. So yeah, we need to find a way to get to a place where we see pedagogy as inquiry and inquiry as pedagogy and make room for, I mean, that kind of a, of a system. I think it's possible. So to celebrate this podcasting milestone, I've invited Greg Scutches on the show. In our conversation, we discuss topics far beyond fresh ed. We get into the purpose and meaning of education, what it means to have a voice and learn from our failures and to push the boundaries and take on institutional power. Greg Scutches is the director of writing across the curriculum at Lehigh University and teaches courses in the university's English department. Greg Scutches, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. I'm really happy to be with you. It's so amazing to have you on the show. I think I first met you in 2007. Is that right? About 15 years ago? That sounds about right. 2007. My, my second year at Lehigh. 
how did we meet? Can you remember that? I do. I remember an email from you uh, just kind of out of the blue. You had a project you were excited about and you're having trouble finding someone to work with, as I recall. And somehow you found me. And I don't recall how that was, but somehow you found you, you came to me. And I remember liking it right off the bat. I think this is great. I think, uh, yeah, it was a um, roommate I had, Stu Baxter, who I think was taking your course in the English department on, was it war and literature? Was that something you taught? Yes, taught a war literature class. Yes, it was kind of like an anti-war literature class. So it was called the literature of war. That's right, the literature of war, right? And so he just talked really highly of you. And so he put us in touch. And the first thing you said to me in the email was when I approached you was, you know, call me coach. That was like your nickname. I never actually think I understood why you were nicknamed coach. Well, I was a college wrestling coach for 11 years. And when I went back to graduate school, I was 35 years old. Um, so, you know, obviously somewhat older than students and older than other graduate students. But teaching first year English, it just felt a lot like coaching. And also, I just, I didn't want to be Mr. I, I wasn't quite brave enough then to be Greg. So coach just seemed like a nice label. And students loved it. You know, hey, coach, you know, so it, so it worked out pretty well. It helped establish the kind of relationship I was hoping to have with students. Are you still called coach? Now I'm Greg. Now you're Greg. Do so you feel comfortable? I do. I, there's two things going on there, right? Yeah, a little bit more comfortable. And also, you know, I think of coach as being my younger, you know, wrestling coach days. And it's starting to feel a little desperate to be holding on to that uh, name. So yeah, I, I'm Greg now. You said you started your graduate studies a bit later at 35 or so. Then, And that's a bit later than maybe other students, the, the norm, let's call it. So did you, you must have had a career outside of academia before you sort of came back? I did. And, and this could be a long story. So I'm going to try to give you the potted version of it. My dad was a doctor. My parents were divorced. And my mother said, I'm going to raise a doctor, you know, come hell or high water. Right. So I had the four kids I was chosen. Went through four years as pre-med, got accepted to medical school and just looked at that letter and said, I don't want to do this. So I decided not to go. And then I was kind of lost. My, my 20s were an adventure. I went back to the college where I had, had attended and was on the wrestling team and became the wrestling coach, assistant for one year, and then 10 years as head coach. And I loved it. But there's the whole story there in that, you know, college for me was really not about learning. It was about getting into medical school and being an important person. And I was not much of a student. I was good at getting grades. I was really interested in wrestling and, and partying and getting into medical school. And I was raised that things like literature and stuff are just, you know, I mean, that's not really what's important in life. Being successful, competing well is what's important. And literature is kind of for after you get there, you know, if you can say something clever at a cocktail party kind of thing. So I had dismissed it as kind of, you know, ancillary to the main project of being a successful person. But in my 20s, I started reading on my own. And I remember watching a show like something like Charlie Rose, you know, and they'd be talking about books and I hadn't read these books. I thought there's going to be important conversations I'm never going to be part of. So I started reading. I had finished a book at two in the morning, no one to talk to, you know, and it was a little, just a lonely enterprise. Then these two things came together. One is that my wife got pregnant with twins and I got out of coaching because coaching was a part-time gig for me and got a job with Dun & Bradstreet, you know, kind of middle management job with this huge corporation. And well, I, I just hated it. I just was, I was miserable. So a couple things happened. I discovered reading and the life of the mind on my own. I missed being around young people. I missed so much being around college students. And I remember driving up the Northeast Extension of the Pennsylvania Turnpike after a business meeting. And I actually had an anxiety attack. I thought 
this is my life. I can't do this. I went home that night and I asked my wife, uh, I said, I'd like to quit my job and go back to graduate school. And of course, not talking MBA. We're not talking law school. We're talking English. Really smart career. I remember my mother-in-law saying, you know, I knew he was a loser. You know? <laughs> and she had been home with the kids. She had been Lehigh's women's basketball coach for a couple of years. She was home with the kids and she started sending out applications to return to teaching right away. I applied to graduate school. I stayed here at Lehigh because that's where I lived. You know, we had kids. I didn't want to travel. And so that's how that came about. And the coach thing just seemed like just like a natural fit. It's kind of what drew me to teaching. And I can say a whole lot about coaching too, how originally I just wanted to win, but I learned after a couple of years, I had a greater responsibility than that to these young people, these young men. And that was a huge lesson for me to learn. So it's quite an amazing story. I mean, and so personal, but also I think thinking about it now, it makes me realize how valuable it was for me to have someone like you in my life at that moment when I didn't really know what I was planning on doing. I mean, I, I remember I started out studying engineering because that's what my father did and it just seemed like the natural fit. And then I think I took calculus two and realized I hate this, you know, like it's just not what I want to be doing and I can't imagine myself doing this in the future. And I didn't really know what to do afterwards and I ended up English. I took a few English classes at Lehigh and just absolutely loved them. And then I think I just started this journey of what is education even for? What am I trying to do with my education? And so having someone in my life like you was actually so valuable in many ways. And it came about, you know, I don't even know where this idea came from, but I approached you and I basically said, would you be an independent advisor to something I called the culture of conversation? Do you remember what that was? I do. I mean, it was what we're doing now. And it was actually what is interestingly enough is what's being kind of being called for more and more now, I think, in higher ed where we're trying to say, let's get to where we can talk to each other. And all the impediments that are, in, you know, to conversation right now, whether it's boomers don't know what to say to young people, you know, and political divide, of course. And I think, so I'm hearing more and more about this. We need to be able to talk to each other. We need, we need a culture of conversation, so to speak. But for me, it fit very much with uh, how I saw my job as director of writing across the curriculum. I mean, I think that I came to Lehigh, it was very much, let's, it still is with some improvement, but it was very much a culture of testing. You remember, four o'clock exam. And that's really, that subjugates student voices. And I thought that you cannot have writing at a culture that does not seek to honor and nurture student voices. And you can't have student voices without dialogue, right? Uh, so a culture of conversation, which I, as I recall, sought to say, look, let's just, we're all equal. We're, we're having dialogue. You know, we're going to exchange ideas or we're going to challenge each other and to explore, you know, our thoughts and articulate them well. So that was right in line with what I thought writing across curriculum was. It's so funny. I mean, I didn't know anything about writing across the curriculum. And so, you know, I was just amazed that you agreed to be, you know, this special advisor to me. And actually, I could get credit to like work on this idea. And I've pulled up some old emails that we exchanged and even some poster presentations that I created. And there was one and it was like this, like in the center of the presentation, it was power reversal. It was like trying to give all of the power to the students and taking all the power away from the university. And I made this presentation. And then in these emails, I didn't remember this until I looked back at these emails, but I ended up giving presentations to like the dean of admissions at Lehigh to, to explain <laughs> what the culture of conversation was. Now, I mean, how do you understand that? Like, what were you thinking back then when you were working with me on this? I mean, because when I look back at it now, it seems sort of crazy that I was given an audience with people that really did hold all the power. And here I am, this young, you know, university student sort of challenging them at the heart 
of what they do. Yeah, I mean, you were the embodiment of what I had hoped for all students. I thought then, and I still think today, that the biggest mistake we make in higher education is we underestimate the capabilities of our students. And there's a lot of coercion around that that starts from preschool on, and we can talk about that if, if you like. But to have a student who, you know, had just the, the bravery, the insight to step outside of this, I'm getting, I'm working my way through the gauntlet, through the gauntlet of gatekeepers. No, I actually want to get an education. I actually want to have this matter. I said to you in a recent email, I was still new at Lehigh. I was still finding, am I going to be able to fit here? Are they going to say, whoa, what a mistake we made hiring this guy? But when you came along, it was just very early in my career. I was just so happy that a Lehigh student would be capable, you know, of kind of stepping outside the role and to be authentic about their education. Do you think there's a connection with culture of conversation and fresh ed? I mean, you know, we're celebrating this 300th episode and I, I invited you specifically on because to me, there's a connection. To me, a lot of the history of fresh ed, the prehistory, so to speak, actually starts with you and I having conversations about what ends up being called culture of conversation. But I mean, how do you see the, is there a connection between these things? Well, first of all, I'm just flattered that this is the case that you say this about, you know, our early time together. But yes, you know, I think the robust exchange of ideas is essential. And you don't always get that in higher ed or the, you know, I mean, whether it's an academic conference or a committee meeting, there's ambition at stake, there's career success at stake. And I think that, you know, what you've created with this podcast is, you know, it sounds so simple, but to say what they really think and say what they're really working on, you know, and, and that's rare, I think. As much as, the, you know, we think of higher education as the life of the mind, it's often not. What do you think it often is? It's often about, you know, it's, I mean, it still has to operate within a capitalist culture where we're competing and it's about proving yourself. And I think it's the same with students. I mean, we have students that are so busy proving themselves that there's no ability to improve themselves, you know? And I think it's the same with faculty. You get into grad school, you get into, you go to the best one you can get to, you, you know, write the best papers you can. One of the first things I think they do in graduate school is make everybody feel stupid. So you want to be the smartest person in the room and it's just on and on and on. And and when I was in grad school, I was old enough to see some of the flaws in that. I mean, when someone said to me, the only good dissertation is a finished dissertation, and I realized that that was a thing that is set off, and I thought, wow, if that can go unchecked, if that can be seen as advice, we're in trouble. Because it's, to me, the implicit message there is, hey, look, don't get excited about this. Don't think you're going to get new knowledge. Just get it done so you can get on this, so you can get on this, you know, bus to a job and to tenure. And I think once you go down that path, I mean, that too pace, I don't think can get put back in the tube if that's the way you proceeded with your career. And that's what I think it mostly is. It mostly is people proving themselves to get to the next stage. That sort of system breeds so much insecurity where no one feels like they're just sort of performing how good they are and they don't actually sort of just play around with ideas. Performing is the word that I find myself really stuck on right now. I want to write a paper called What is a Student Paper? I want to write an article, What is a Student Paper? Because I don't think we understand what that is. I mean, I don't think anybody has really articulated, even in my profession of writing composition and rhetoric, what a student paper is. But this idea, not five, yeah, yeah, certainly not five paragraphs, but even what's going on there, you know, I mean, there's a connection between writer and reader and it's a little conduit, a little skinny little conduit between these two people. But for the professor, what's going on on the other side of this conduit is massive and complicated. And we reduce that to this little conduit and comment on that as if that's really helping over here with this with the student. And your, your audience can't see me, but I'm kind of holding up two different sides of this kind of divide between uh, teacher and student. But what students do when they write those papers typically is perform. They perform for the greater, for the gatekeeper. And it's in that case, it's not really 
really communication. It's just another form of a test, in my opinion. But so how would, you know, and this sort of brings us to some of the work you've done with writing across the curriculum. How is it possible for teachers, mentors, professors to support students, work with students on that other side of the, you know, spectrum here, rather than just looking at the essay and, and commenting on that, how do we actually provide valuable, meaningful support to those students? That's such a great question. That question is kind of where I've lived for the last 16 or 17 years, right? And it's, it just starts with a focus on process, not on product. And so I find myself using the analogy of writing, learning writing as a skill versus learning other skills. So, I mean, writing is taught basically traditionally papers are assigned and graded. And what happens in between there is a black box that the student is alone to figure out on their own. And they're writing at two in the morning. And not, they don't even know if this is what they're supposed to be doing, right? Now, how many other skills are taught like that? If you learn to hit a baseball, you know what the goal is. The goal is to hit that ball over the center field fence if you can. And now what do I need to know to do that? Plant my back foot, swing level, keep my eye on the ball, all of those things. And when you practice, you get feedback on those. Oh, you drop your elbow, get it up, okay? There's none of that happens. You're looking at, nope, it didn't go over the center field fence, C, right? You know, it was a foul, D, right? And but how do you improve on that? You just have to, students are left to figure that out on their own. One of the things I find so amazing in university now that I'm teaching like you do, which is a weird thing to think that you were my teacher and now I'm also a teacher. But I find that with student writing, there's this assumption that students learn how to write in earlier grades, right? It's always like, oh, it's not our job to teach writing. They should have learned that already. Our job is just to, you know, assess the writing they do about whatever the subject matter is of the class, of the module. And it's just, it's always like, it's always someone else's problem to deal with writing. It's never the teacher who assigns the writing itself. I could take the rest of our time together talking about this. The thing that keeps me going, the thing that, you know, in the darkest times I've had at Lehigh where I couldn't make progress in improving the curriculum from a writing perspective, getting more writing into courses, the belief of what my job really means of cultivating, nurturing student voices. Like, I feel so strongly about that. You just can't stop me, right? I mean, it's having a voice is one of the things that makes us human, the desire to connect. I mean, everybody at some level is saying, you know, I'm here, Dan. It, listen to me. You know, we all are. We want our ideas to be taken seriously. We want to be respected. That's what writing is. And it has different applications. Whether you're a philosopher or an accountant, you learn how to do it in that way. But even as an accountant, you know, and I don't mean to deprecate accounting, but we don't think of accounting as writing. You send that accounting report, you're writing that to another human being. And they don't understand that. And it's your job as a human being to explain that to them, right? So, you know, when you think about that writing is this thing, it's two things, right? Having a voice is something we all want, every one of us. Every human being wants it. But yet, managed to do in, in education is create a situation where students hate writing. They don't want to take writing courses. I mean, that's a generalization, but you know, no one sends their kid off to college saying, hey, make sure you ace freshman comp, right? They say, first of all, test out of it if you can. Second, just get through it. Get the best grade you can. When in fact, when I'm teaching English one as I am now, it can and should be the most important course a student takes to be able to learn things, different perspectives, different arguments, to synthesize those to think deeply about them and then come out with something worthwhile to say. What's more important? But it's been deprecated, right? I mean, so you, but then your point about that, that it's somebody else's job, right? You know, so when I was early in my time at Lehigh, I remember this was said to me more than once when I was talking about doing more teaching of writing. And the assumption was, as you just said, well, students should come to us. They should have been taught that in high school. They should come to us and write. One person, the most egregious, the most kind of hurtful thing that was said to me was, you know, we don't need people like you. We just need to get better students, you know? And 
the idea is this is something that's just to be automatic, as you said. And then, of course, then the other line was, what are they doing in first year English? You know, why aren't they teaching them how to write biology lab reports, for example? They can't write this physics as biology lab report. Why didn't they teach Mr. Freshman English? And really, it's a deprecation of their own discipline to me in a way, because no, actually, you have a very sophisticated conversation going on here in biology. And, you know, that cannot be taught in first year comp. And I don't think you want it to be taught in first year comp either, do you? <laughs> you know, so I could go on for this. I'm going to say one more thing about this, if you don't mind. I don't you probably want to move on, but this idea of grading student writing, faculty will say it to me all the time, often, almost, and this is, and you probably know this yourself, I hate grading, I hate grading student writing. And that's an outgrowth of what I said before about what we've done to writing the you know, education system, how we've kind of marginalized it and really, I think, downplayed its importance terribly. If you think what a good writing project is for a student, it should be them wrestling intelligently with concepts and ideas that matter in that discipline, that should matter to a professor. And if you don't like and you're really you're sit, watching the student line by line, you know, struggle intellectually with something that matters. If you don't enjoy giving feedback on that, then what is it about teaching that you like? Why are you teaching? Because you can have just input. It's like a, if a good assignment is like I said, a conduit to that student's process, the way they think. And boy, you get the privilege of giving them feedback on that. And that's something that we've been trained to hate. And that's just what a travesty, one of the many travesties. It's we're trained to hate. And then I think it's also the system itself is designed not to to allow for such support. Where I work, I've been encouraged multiple times that student feedback on written assignments should just justify the marking criteria and not actually provide feedback on how to improve it because, you know, the way the system is set up, the student doesn't actually have the opportunity to improve it. There's no, you know, they can't resubmit it. So all you have to do is justify the grade given. I always find that such a terrible way to think about giving feedback and giving a mark. Yeah, that's almost an act of violence, actually, you know, to impose that kind of power on a student without justification. I mean, it's basically saying that to the, the batter who can't even see where the ball went because they don't know what they're trying to do. You're out. Go. You're out. Go away. Right. And instead of what well, it should be, okay, the ball's going to come in again. You're trying to hit it over the center field fence. The thing you did was you lifted your back foot. There's none of that. It's just you're out. And you know, it's a system that supports what we mostly really do in our education is process students instead of educating them. Right. You know, a cohort of Lehigh students comes in, and you know, we don't say this out loud, but we're looking for who's going to get in the right slots. Who's going to be the engineer? Who's going to be the pre-med? who's going to go out there and represent Lehigh well and give money back. I mean, that's how it ends up functioning. If we were really educating, and let's say, of course, say calculus, if you take that test, should you really be labeled with that and you get a C? Should you label with that and that's it? That's how we, that's what we do. But you really should be able to take that test again and again. As many times as a student is willing to take it until you master that skill or that knowledge, that understanding, that concept. But we don't do that. We don't make any excuse for it. It's just assumed. And if you really step back and look at that, that's not education, that's processing. And and it is violent. I remember when I, you know, failed chemistry or calculus two, I felt awful, terrible. You know, I took it as a personal sort of slight that I'm stupid and dumb and that I'll never succeed. And then, you know, you sort of imagine the future being, I'm never going to get a job. I'm never going to, you know, it's just like all these things cascade into this really sort of negative spiral all because of one bad grade. Yeah. I mean, that it's really so powerful. And, you know, that's another way the whole thing works, right? You know, if a student is at Lehigh, 
you know, or any any college really, but I think it probably applies to the more competitive colleges where, you know, students are just lucky to be there. And if they fail a course, it's more than an intellectual failure. It's a moral failure, right? Okay. You were given this privilege and you blew it. And that's how the student feels. Like you just said, the student feels shame. The student doesn't, you know, we talk about growth mindset right now, right? I mean, the mistake is where we learn. If you already know how to do it, you don't learn anything. You already know how to do it. So you need to go on to the next thing that you don't know and, and you're going to fail and you're going to make a mistake. And that moment of failure is really the beautiful moment. Just finished uh, using a book with my first year class called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Martians of Error by Catherine Schultz. It's a beautiful book. It explores all the ways that we're wrong and how we think about wrongness in such a harmful way and I think my students really like it. I mean, they really had a lot to say about it. So, but it's very, it's, it, I think breaking that, it's going to be hard, but I think that that's what we really need to do, break that, that mold. So, you know, with your program, this, this writing across the curriculum, where you really tried to get writing sort of integrated into all subjects at all different levels of the university at Lehigh. And you sort of told a story about biology teachers saying, you know, well, why don't you just teach teach how to write a biology report in freshman composition literature. Um, why do I have to teach it in, in my biology class? You've been at this now for over 15 years at Lehigh trying to, you know, build up this program. Has it been successful? Like, you know, I guess I'm more interested in how do you get that biology teacher? How do you get these professors in all these different disciplines to embrace process, to embrace feedback, to embrace sort of coaching students in that process of writing rather than just sort of saying, just give me the output and I'm going to measure it based on some marking criteria and we're going to move on. So I've tried a number of different ways, right? I, I do workshops. You know, they're fun and they're great, but when the faculty you get coming to those workshops is the people who are already working on this and they want to get better, right? The people, like I said, hate grading writing, don't want anything to do with it. They're not going to come to one of my workshops. So, but the workshops have the value of connecting you with the culture. You know, the first thing I did when I came to Lehigh was I started on July 6th, 2006, and I made a goal to have coffee with 100 members members of the faculty by holiday, by holiday break. And I got to 102. And that was probably the most important thing I did because I made friends cultivated relationships. And so they would come to my workshops and then, you know, some of them, right, not all of them, the ones who I connected with and just incrementally just reaching out and touching as many people as I could. So that's one way. The other way is to actually affect the curriculum to have, you know, writing kind of baked into courses. That's a lot harder. That's a lot harder. We had a thing called the writing intensive course, which is a common thing. I mean, you may even have them where you are. I think they do more harm than good. And I learned that through a study I did at Lehigh back in 2010. We did a really large study you know, a whole bunch of focus groups, many, many surveys. And it turns out that writing intensive courses are courses that faculty don't want to teach, students don't want to take. But even more damaging than that, all the writing that maybe could be in other courses through that through the curriculum is just thrown into there. So students get the suppression that writing doesn't really matter because I don't do it in my main courses. I do it in this course they forced me to take. So the preconceived notions about writing turn out to be to be true. But the way that the most progress that I've made well is by starting the Track Writing Fellows Program. Okay, look, say that's the Technology Research and Communication Writing Fellows. They're undergraduate peer tutors who do not work in a writing center, but they're actually assigned to courses. So they work with the professor and the students in the course through, throughout the whole semester. And to work with a Track Fellow professors have to agree to certain requirements. They have to make sure that fully developed drafts of each project are due to the track fellows two weeks before they're due for grading. Track fellows 
read these drafts, put comments on them. And these are non-directive kind of, you know, kind of what I would say generative comments, right, to generate conversation. Return those to the students and then schedule an individual conference where they kind of just work through this draft. And that's been the thing that I think has worked best at Lehigh, and it has actually helped to promote other kinds of change. But we started with 15 fellows back in the fall of 2008, and now we have about anywhere between 85 and 90 track fellows. And we work with about 1,200 students and maybe 25 or 30 faculty each semester. And that has been, not only has it been the thing that is advanced writing, you know, across the curriculum at Lehigh more than anything else, but it's actually been the most rewarding project of my professional life, working with these undergraduate peer tutors. So you basically are supervising these track fellows and then the track fellows get put into all these different courses and work with the professor and sort of provide that peer engagement peer feedback and sort of support that formative feedback process. Yes. And they actually also give feedback to the faculty on their assignments and the syllabi. Yeah. That was a actually a moment for me that was stunning was first year we had this program. We had 15 new fellows. And I remember a guy named Raj Menon, who was in our international relations department, and really kind of a, he's a guy with an international reputation, really well known, highly respected. And he was one of the really important faculty who was so helpful to me because he respected my project you know, writing cross curriculum and, and really promoted it. And he requested track fellows his first semester. And I remember seeing him and one of our first track fellows sitting in the, the lobby in McGinnis Hall. This is this revered guy. Like he would, when it's a lecture, he would wait just till two minutes after the class started and he would walk into the lecture hall with all the students sitting there. And he, okay, and take his position at the front of the stage, right? They are, there they are going through his assignment line by line. Like literally he's crossing out and the track fellow is talking and he's like getting what she's saying and writing. I, I was like, oh, was blown away by this. And the idea is what we were training fellows to say, and I didn't think it would work this well, is to say, look, and, and these are all really successful students. Like we, we were lucky that first year to get 15 unbelievable young people. One of them is working in the White House now, Crystal Kai, but uh, these wonderful people. And, uh, you know, we, we said, look, what you say to the professor is, if I don't understand the assignment prompt, if it's not clear to me, I'm not gonna be able to help your students. And that's a really powerful inroad, okay, to the professor. And so that was like a wedge for us that, you know, it was almost like a bait and switch wheel. Like we, I would say, look, apply for a track fellow to help you with your course or track fellows, you'll get better student writing. That was like the tagline. You'll be able to focus on the kind of thinking you want to focus on in the student's papers and not worry about you know, how they're written, whether they're comprehensible, whether they're well-organized and so forth. And it, it, we did, we were able to do that right from the start, but it also started the faculty who work with fellows thinking about process, sometimes for the first time. And that changed everything. So we have faculty who work with us every year semester for 10 years now. Yeah. And we haven't been able to take on new faculty, even because, you know, the ones who we work with now don't want to part with their fellows, you know, so. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, so Greg, you are retiring at the end of the academic year does writing across the curriculum at lehigh continue to exist after you leave well i sure hope so the thing about the track writing fellows program it's not just student-centered it's radically student-centered okay so there's no way that one person could adequately manage a group of 85 to 90 students so we have a lot of leadership that's built into the program and i meet with we have an lt leadership team i meet with them weekly and those monday meetings at five o'clock are like my favorite meetings of the week we walk the talk i mean like we you know i said the biggest thing we mistake we make in higher ed is underestimating our students we don't underestimate track fellows right i mean they want 
freedom to pursue academic work. They want, and then they also want responsibility in the track program. So we do a lot of innovative things in track and every idea, every cool thing we're doing came from a, from a track fellow who said, do you ever think about doing this? You know, and so one of the things I'm most proud of is I think if you would ask all, I think we have 87 track fellows this semester. If you would ask all of them individually, do you feel your voice matters in the track program? I think they would all say, yeah, if I have an idea, it will be given thorough consideration. And my idea could then it, next year or two years or three years be being done by all track fellows. I think that's so, so, so important to an organization that thrives. It just, it reminds me of when we met and how you supported and encouraged me to have ideas and, and sort of, you know, anything was possible. Anything could improve sort of my own learning. And, it, you know, it sounds like you've now instituted this on a rather mass scale at one university. And I mean, it's quite incredible in a way. And it makes me wonder, you know, you recently wrote this op-ed in the student newspaper at Lehigh, and you basically call for for higher education to be a carnival of learning. Is this sort of what you mean, like this where it's really radically student-centered and all ideas can be on the table? I do. I think that you have to look back at the you know, tradition of higher education, which has always kind of had its foot in a couple of camps. On one hand, education is passing down a tradition. Basically, the lesson is this is how we do things around here. Right. That makes sense. Right. You know, public education came to serve the needs of an industrial economy. Right. And actually a war machine. Right. Because, you know, people needed how to read to be in the army. Right. And it, it did that work, you know, very well. I mean, it, it's a competitive model that served a competitive capitalist society. This might be reaching too far deep for these reasons, but I don't think we can do that anymore. Right. We can't. I mean, this generation of college students is being handed the largest set of catastrophic, potentially catastrophic problems in any generation. I mean, everything matters now, right? These problems are so big, we need good solutions. Well, we don't want baby boomers telling them how to solve these problems because my generation, we just kicked that can down the road. You know, once the shopping mall and the hedge fund came along and Ronald Reagan was elected president, all of our values of the 60s went right out the window. So that's not a tradition that needs to be passed on. What needs to be passed on is a carnival of, of learning. I mean, we act like if we don't test students, they're not going to be curious. Like, if we don't put them through this ridiculous, rigorous protocol, that they're just going to sit on the couch and play computer games. Computer games are more of a refuge from that, right? If you don't have that, you're not going to have the couch. You can have students doing things, right? People are curious. So yeah, we need to find a way to get to a place where we see pedagogy as inquiry and inquiry as pedagogy and make room for, I mean, that kind of a, of a system. I think it's possible. Well, Greg Scutches, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you for mentoring me all those years ago and just giving me these ideas and focusing on the process. And, uh, you know, when I think back on Fresh Ed after 300 episodes, I really do point to you as one of the beginnings. Well, I'm honored by that. But you should also know, Will, that back in 2007, you were mentoring me too. Absolutely. I learned so much from you and I've always been grateful for that. Thank you. Greg Scutches is the director of Writing Across the Curriculum at Lehigh University. The op-ed he wrote in the brown and white is entitled, What is College For? A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Octus, Obafemi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, 
Anyalin, Lin, Phyllis Chaymensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shakdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.